I went to this conference this week, and the theme of the conference was recovery uh, from discouragement, essentially different ways. It was for pastors and their wives. So the themes were uh, about church and leading as a pastor and, uh, and being a pastor's wife. So the talks were on things like uh, failure, anger, grief, uh, rejection, criticism, and, and a lot of it was, um, you know, they were making jokes about how every, every one of these talks was about repair, and of course, it's in the context of two and a half years of COVID and everything, you know, that, that, that's been the polarization through social media of these different issues uh, that are going on in our society that, that are part of this, um, this cauldron that's going on in churches, whether it's COVID or social polarization, social issues that are having a big effect on the church in America. And um, <clears throat> it was very, very wonderful and helpful. But during one of the messages, I, I was taken back to a day uh, last year when I was in this room on a Tuesday night prayer night and I was discouraged, I believe. I'm having trouble remembering the exact context circumstantially, not what I sensed that Lord willing, the Lord spoke to me, but I, I, was dis- I believe I was discouraged. It was in the context of some challenge in ministry, a challenge with some dear brothers and sisters where there was some sort of trouble going on and not sure how to help, what to say, what to do, and, and feeling very thin. And, um, and I was looking for ways to find solutions in various things. Um, the, the people at our church, the uh, strength or lack of strength in numbers, uh, the, the commitment or lack of commitment. I, I was looking for these things to try to find my, my resting place as a pastor. And I felt like I couldn't find a place to rest in terms of the circumstances in our church or the context of what was going on in our church at the time. It just nothing, it was like any lily pad I tried to hop onto would sink with doubt or anxiety or fear. And in the midst of that, I think that's what was going on in the background. In the midst of that, what I do remember very clear is I heard this sentence in my mind, I have put my name here. I have put my name here. And it was a rebuke that I felt in my soul and an encouragement. And basically the idea was, Albert, what matters most is I have put my name on this place. I've put my name on this place. That's where you need to find your grounding for being a church. That's where you need to find your grounding for being a pastor. I have put my name here. And because of that, this church is holy. Because of that, this church is is crucial, this church is important because I am here and I have put my name. It was very, very invigorating. Now listen, I don't know for sure whether that was the Holy Spirit, but that's not important. What's important is, is, is that true? Like I, I, in the prophetic gifts that we talk about, we, we always want to hold them loosely. Did you hear from the Lord? Like the Lord told me to marry Janet. Well, you know what? The Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, didn't tell you to marry Janet. But other times we hear things that do sound very much in keeping with the Lord. And so we want to test those things. And the, the important thing isn't necessarily, did you hear it or not? It can often be the important thing is, is that true? Is that true? Because if it's true, then we should be encouraged. Whether I heard it on some Tuesday night a year ago or not, if it's true, 
that the Lord's name is here, we should be encouraged. Now, I don't remember ever reading that passage in the Bible. I, I, I suppose I've heard it somewhere, but man, it was very loud in my heart. I never put that to memory. I don't even remember seeing that in scripture before. To be completely frank with you, I didn't know what to do with that phrase. I've put my name here. So I looked, you know, I pulled out my phone on the way home, and um, I hope I was at a stoplight or something, <laughs> but, but, um, but I, I remember putting it in the, in the phone. I put my name here. Boom, 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 boom. It was all over. It was all over the Old Testament. So this message is sprung from that phrase in which God says of Jerusalem and more specifically of his temple that he has put his name there. It's a curious phrase, isn't it? I've put my name there. You can think of I've put my spirit there or I've put my stuff there, you know? I've put my eyes there, but to put his name there. But I, I think it's actually a glorious and very encouraging idea for our church, for us individually, but specifically for today, for our church as a church family, if we can grasp what it means and transfer it to 2022, all the way from 960 BC when God said it to Solomon at the dedication of the temple or whenever it was. So this phrase comes out in, in vital color in 1 Kings 8 9, where Solomon is consecrating the temple, the first temple on solid ground, not the moving around tabernacle, but the actual building. And Solomon says to God at the consecration of that temple, he says, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. And then he prays to God, may your eyes be open towards this temple day and night, this place of which you said, my name shall be there. So Solomon prays this beautiful prayer and he adds much to it. He asks God to forgive his people again and again and again when they pray towards the house where God dwells. He prays for the foreigner to be received into communion with God when he has the spirit, when he has the right attitude towards who God is, especially towards that dwelling place as it's commemorated. And he does all this in light of the fact that the temple is built for God's name. And that prayer is in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And you can look it up for yourself. It's very long. And I, my foreigner comment might lack some precision there. So double check on that. Though he does, it is a beautiful prayer for the foreigner. But the way I construct it, I just want to be careful about God's word. But here's the deal. All of Israel was there that, in, in that season. Hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, were there in Jerusalem crowding around this consecration of God's house. It lasted 14 days. And during that time, the, the scriptures tell us that fire from heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifices that were made at the consecration of that temple. And that God's presence was made visible in a cloud of what's called Shekinah glory that actually fills the whole temple as a way of God saying, I am here I am here in this place with you. Yes, I will dwell in this place. And then in 1 Kings 9, God responds to this prayer of David's with these words. I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. 
I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So I, I want us this morning to focus on this idea of what does it mean that God has put his name on that temple for us today? And I want to start by asking a fundamental question. What's in the name? Like if God puts his name, well, let's start with like, what is, what's the deal with name, right? We talked about, we could understand if God said, I put my heart there, I put my spirit there, but he says his name. Now, we really want to understand this because every day of our lives, we're called to pray before everything else. What? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're also commanded to pray in Jesus' name and expect to receive whatever we ask for in his name. Now, I don't know about you, but there are lots of things over the course of my life that I have prayed for in Jesus' name. I've put that tag on there and I've meant it and I've not received them. So we should understand, is there something going on in our understanding of what that means? We're told in our current chapter, Romans chapter one, that everything Paul is doing as an apostle to bring the gospel to as many people as he can, he does for the sake of Jesus' name. So if your eyes are open to it, you, you can barely turn a page in the Bible without seeing the name of the Lord. And many times you'll see it again and again and again and again and again. But, but have you ever really sought to dig deep and understand what does God mean when he talks of his name? His name. I want to break it down into two, at least two fundamental things that we should get and understand when we hear about God talking about his name. And, and I, don't, I don't pretend to be uh, that I've done, you know, years of work on this concept. And I think there is more to it than what I'll bring you today. But I think what I'll bring you today will be part of it and will be important, Lord willing. So the first thing I want to say is that God's name represents who he is. That's my first point. I think I do have a slide for that, Ed. God's name represents who he is. And it sounds duh, but let's slow down and stop to think about this. Think about living in a world without names. And, and you asked me who, who, Jen, who Jen is, but you, didn't, you couldn't use your name. You were just like, who? And, and I could try to reveal her identity to you. I, I might say, oh, she's funny. She's the funny one. She's the intelligent one. She's the sensible one. She's the emotionally stable one. She's the pretty one. She's the teacher of music one for 10 years. She, she's the one who studied music in college. And she has a wonderful singing voice with, that she underestimates and so on and so on. I could go on and on and on and say that's who Jen is. But I, you know, without saying that's Jen, as you got to know her, you might learn all those things. Oh, but, but it would be really cumbersome for you to try to come up to me and ask about her and say, hey, how is the funny one? How's the intelligent one, the sensible one? You know, and I'd be like, okay, there's five of those people I can think of. Well, I'll narrow it down. How is the beautiful voiced one and the stable emotional one? And I'd be oh, you mean that one? Yes, yes, how is that? So, so we have this practice from the beginning of time of simply giving people a term that sort of is a container for all that the person is, and it's very efficient, thank God, right? <laughs> but the closer you get to the biblical idea of name, the more you see a connection that, that isn't in that illustration, if we just look at Jen. Now, Jen has a meaning. 
It's a great meaning. It means beautiful. But, but, but in God's word, the actual identity or character of some defining aspect of the person is caught up in their name, especially early in the scriptures. We see that. Name means more than just the tag you put on it, as if you could put some arbitrary, like if Becky comes by, no one's like, Becky, what does that mean? Hi, Becky. Oh, this is Becky. Now let me think about what does Becky mean? When you say Becky, what am I learning about you, Becky? No, you have to learn through talking to Becky for a long time and getting to know her. That's how you get to know Becky. But in the Bible, the name contained vital aspects of the person. So for instance, when God names Adam, it's not arbitrary. It's a name that Adama that sounds like earth because Adam was formed from the earth that God made. When he names Eve, he chooses a name that means life or giver of life. That's what Eve means because as a woman, Eve would bring children in the, into the world and the Hebrew for Eve sounds like giver of life. When he names Abram, Abraham, the father of many nations because that's what Abraham's going to be. So no more Abram, you're now going to be the father of many nations. So Abraham, when he moves Sarai, the one who laughs into Sarah, a princess, it's because she's going to be a princess to God. Abraham is like a king over God's people. So names aren't arbitrary in the scriptures, especially the farther back you go. They're connected to vital and defining aspects of who people are. And this is true of God. In Exodus 3, Pivotal moment in the history of the world takes place. God reveals his personal name to Moses. Every time you read the Lord in capital letters in the Bible, it's not the Lord. I don't mean this in a glib way, but if you were reading a letter uh, about Rob's life, Rob Kelly, and every time it said Rob, instead of Rob, they took it out and they put person, you know, person. That's what we do. We put, when we put Lord God in front of that actual name that's there out of, out of the sake of God's honor to not take his name in vain. Most Bibles don't say what's actually written there when you see capital L-O-R-D. It's Yahweh. It's God's personal name. It's like Robert, but it's God's personal name. And, and we know this name is linguistically meaningful. It is related to a Hebrew verb to be, and, and, and right before God explains Yahweh to Moses, Moses asks God, who are you? Who are you? In Exodus 3, God says, I am who I am. Yahweh is connected linguistically to that very idea, I am who I am. It's not a literal translation of that, but it's caught up in the same linguistic root and the verb of to be. So God's name Yahweh is not arbitrary. It implies his eternal, self-sustaining, self-existence. He is the only ultimate, all-powerful source of all things. And that is supposed to be caught up, contained, represented by Yahweh. But, and this is really interesting, that's not all that Yahweh represents. That's not all the color commentary we get on what Yahweh means in the scriptures. I am that I am, the all-sufficient, all-sustaining one. That's a big, huge aspect of it. But God gives more of what he means when he says Yahweh. Because in Exodus 33, an amazing thing happens that helps us get even deeper into the heart of God's name, Yahweh. Moses is leading the nation of Israel through the desert. He's in the cauldron 
of accusation and grumbling. He is tired and weary. And God is at times um, upset and revealing his anger at what Israel is doing. And I, I feel like Moses is kind of feeling like he's caught between a rock and a hard place in this. And he is desperate for relief. And he's seeking his relief in God. And he is asking God, please show me who you are. I am, I am in distress. I need to know who you are. Which sounds weird to us because it's Moses, right? You'd think Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And, but at this point, Moses has written those books and he has no Bible. Moses has no Genesis. He has no Psalms. He has, certainly has no Gospels. He has no conception of the Trinity, of, of God as unity and community. He has no conception of the Holy Spirit. And God is, is, to a large degree, he hasn't lived his life as a worshiper of Yahweh. This happened to him at a bush when God revealed who he was to him. He might have some traditional oral history from the Hebrew slaves that he knows about, but he is getting on the job training when it comes to knowing who God is here. And he says to God, I don't know, who are you? Like, if I'm gonna survive this burden, these people are gonna survive this burden, I need to know who you are. You have to stay with us, but who are you? Show, he says, show me your glory, which is who you are, please make it visible to me. Magnify who you are to me. I need to see you, and God says this. God says, okay, I will. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, to you. Now, we go back to Exodus 3. God had already revealed the name Yahweh to Moses in Exodus 3. So what is he, when Moses says, show me who you are, and God says, I will show you, I will proclaim my goodness, or I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh. I mean, you already did that. What's up with that? Well, that's not, God doesn't just mean I'm just going to say Yahweh to you. God is saying, I will tell you more deeply what my name means. I will tell you more deeply what I mean when I say Yahweh. Because what happens next is that God puts Moses in a safe place in the crevice of a rock. And then he lets a hint, just a hint of his visible glory pass by Moses. So it's not too much that it would kill him. And, and as God passes by Moses, he proclaims out loud. God literally says out loud the name Yahweh. And he fills in what he means by Yahweh. He does his own commentary on what he means by Yahweh. So here's what God says as Moses sees this fleeting glimpse of just a bit of God's glory, Moses hears these words. Yahweh, Yahweh. And we do have this slide, Ed. Can you go? He says this. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So now we know that when God says Yahweh, he means for his name to represent all of that. He means for his name to, 
In other words, to be synonymous with who he is, his character. When you meet Matt or Becky, they don't expect you to carry all the weight of their very person in that name. When you say Matt or you say Becky, they don't expect you to put all their honor, all their dignity, all their history, all their heart into that name when you say Matt or Becky. But when God speaks his name and when we speak God's name, he means for his name to bear the gravity of all that he is. If I could put it indelicately, God's name is sort of like a flag of a nation. If you're a patriotic World War II veteran, I know people have you know, issues with America and American history, and I'm not trying to put those aside. Like there are really bad things in our history, like slavery and you know, wars that, battles that we didn't fight well. And, and like there's some really bad stuff that's happened to America and by America. But let's just for a second put that all aside and, and just think about a patriotic World War II veteran. A patriotic World War II veteran and he sees the American flag. Here's what he doesn't think, probably. He doesn't think, huh, 13 red stripes and white stripes, a square with blue stars. No, he thinks of all that that simple design of white, red, white, red, white, red, blue, star, he thinks of everything it represents. He doesn't sit there and think, red stripe, white stripe, red stripe, white stripe. No, he thinks all his friends who died in that war with him for, for, for the rights of you and I. He thinks of, maybe he thinks of the Bill of Rights, one of the most fantastic extra-biblical documents ever written for the human race. He thinks of Abraham Lincoln and what a good man he tried to be. He thinks of the Mississippi River and the beauty of the Rockies. He thinks of his wife and his family and his children and his grandchildren that that he was trying to save and rescue in that battle in World War II to prevent uh, Germany from being able to, and Japan from being able to encroach on their freedom. He thinks of baseball. He thinks of freedom of religion. He thinks of the Capitol building, the New York skyline. The flag, that simple design is a container in his heart for all of that represents. So when we think of God's name, that's what God is asking us. At least in some way, none of us can do it perfectly. None of us will do it perfectly. But that's what he wants us to feel when we hear that name, Yahweh. Or when we hear the name, Yahweh saves. Does anybody know what name Yahweh saves represents? Jesus. That's what Jesus means. Jesus takes all that God said to Moses, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity. But being just and punishing sin And he adds, saves. This God saves. 
So now we're getting closer to what God means when he says his name is holy, when he says his name is sacred, when he says his name is not to be taken in vain. I grew up with an aunt. She was Aunt Alice. She, we called her Alshi. She was a great aunt of mine. She was like a surrogate mom. She was amazing. And one of the things I've never forgotten about Aunt Alshi was any time us little kids would say the Lord's name as a, um, this is a refrain, like, oh my, you know, you'd say that, oh my gosh, but put, put God's name in. She would, she, every time she would go, woo. And she did it for years. Little, 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 woo. You know, she wouldn't say anything after that. And after a while we knew like, oh man, this is, this is not to be done. This is a holy name. I've never forgotten that. She was a f- faithful attender of church. I think she went to church every day in her faith tradition. And I, I, I loved, she was an amazing woman. She was happy, she was funny, she was delight. She was a great fun. She wasn't a teetotaler. She wasn't hyper, you know, legalistic about things. But man, when you were around her, you did not say that name and not mean it. You did not say that name lightly. You didn't use it as a, as a slang term. <laughs> now, God doesn't want us to do that either, right? It's not a legalistic thing. It means something to his heart. It means something to his heart. He, 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 if I could put it this way, he cares about his name. He cares about who he is. He takes himself with utmost seriousness. And we need to also. His name is not simply four Hebrew consonants. His name, Yahweh, is not simply four Hebrew consonants. It represents the weight of his character, his very person. So when we speak it, we should speak it with reverence and love. Now, now we're also getting closer to understanding what it means to pray in his name, right? We said this a couple weeks ago. When we say in Jesus' name, we're not stamping a label on our prayer to get it through the God factory. Oh, this will get through the official, you know, chain of command. This will get my prayer in Jesus' name. No, no, no. It means that we're going to ask in keeping with who God is is. We're going to ask what we ask, hopefully do our best to ask what we're asking in keeping with who he is as expressed in that holy name. But there's something more. This is my second point of two points before application. God's name represents God's honor. God's name represents who he is That's point one, but God's name also represents his honor, or we might think of it as reputation. I think honor is a a more beautiful, dignified term to use, but essentially that's the same thing. God's name represents his honor or his reputation. If God's name is is, is a shorthand, a flag, so to speak, for all that he is, then of course, by logical extension, his name must carry his honor. His name must carry his reputation. And we understand this easy, in our, in our world, if we just think of common phrases and statements we're used to hearing, statements like, he made a name for himself, didn't he? We don't mean the person went to the social security office and changed their name, right? I made a name for myself, it was Rupert and now it's Dale. No, no, no. We mean that the person has lived in a certain way intentionally so that now many people have a sense of who they think that person is, that person's If it's a positive thing, that person's honor has been esteemed because they've made a name for themselves, for better or for worse. One might say, "Uh, uh, you ruined my good name, right? 
And we don't mean, you spelled my name wrong and now it's ruined. It was Mark and now it's Blark. No, no, no. They don't mean you ruined my, my technical letters. They mean my character has been tarnished by some slander you've projected or proclaimed or some story that's come out. Their reputation is dishonored. So these examples explain how the name of God often functions in scripture. Let's go through just a, a few. Psalm 106, 8. Yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. He saved these people, whoever they are in Psalm 106, so that they and others around them would know. They'd know about God's reputation. They'd know who God is. His, his honor would be magnified around him. Isaiah 48, 9, 11. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. And here we see one of these crucial treat, one of these crucial themes of scripture that God is jealous for his name. He is jealous for his glory. And God's not being arrogant. He knows that he is the most beautiful, loving, righteous, pure, just thing there is. And without him, there is nothing else. Any good that exists in the universe is derivative, secondary good from his goodness. And so he must uphold his character's honor. He must. The universe would fall apart if he did not. And he never apologizes for seeking praise. He never apologizes, apologizes for seeking glory. Because it, it literally is like, if love could be abstracted, and, and let's say love and unselfishness itself walked around the street saying, you should praise me. You should glorify me, unselfishness, right? In one sense, that's the last thing we'd think unselfishness would say. But if unselfishness really cares about what's right in this universe, of course, love and unselfishness would say, above all things, you should uphold me. Unselfishness, humility, right? And that's what God's like, because unselfishness, humility, love, it isn't an abstract concept only. It is a person. It is personified in a being. And that being is jealous that things like love and unselfishness and justice would be upheld above all things because that's who he is. That's where those things come from. That's where those things reside. Romans 1.5, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Paul isn't saying, uh, Paul is, what he's saying is here, the reputation, the honor, the esteem of Jesus Christ needs to spread throughout the whole world. That's what he means by for his namesake, the sake of his names. So in any of these examples, we could substitute the word honor or reputation for every instance of name, and it would essentially function the way I'm trying to describe it here. Name functions here as honor or reputation. So We see that God's name, I'm summing up these two points, we see it represents who he is, and, and logically then it must also function to represent his honor or his character. So that's my explanation for name. Now I wanna come back to this temple briefly. On the day when God made his glory visible and filled the whole building with his presence, 
he said, I have consecrated this house by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And now we can say, having looked at what name means, that when God said this, when he said, I'm putting my name there forever, that what God was doing was he was uniting, number one, what is name? It's, it's who the person is. It's, the, it's their character. He was putting all that he was, who he was in that temple. And number two, he was uniting, he was linking his honor and his reputation with what happened there in that temple. God is putting his very self when he says, I'm putting my name here. He means I'm putting me there. And in doing so, he is risking, in a sense, at least temporarily, he'll fix everything, but he's risking, at least temporarily, his reputation and his honor by linking it with this temple and what goes on in that temple. How that temple is thought of becomes how he is thought of in his experience as God. How that temple is treated becomes how he is treated in his experience as God. What people say and do about that temple is what they're saying and doing about him because he has put himself there and he has united his honor with that temple and what happens to it. So what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with Living Hope Community Church? Well, maybe you're already there, but maybe you're not. What it has to do with us is, is this. Israel's repeated rejection of the Lord God left him with no choice but to leave that temple in Jerusalem, to leave that building, that stone and gold and wood, and to hand it over to conquest where it was destroyed twice and yet we have this promise in 1 Kings that there would be a temple where God would put his name forever and where his eyes and his heart would continually be set for all time. So did God fail in his plan? Was he pretending that day? No. No, there's a deeper meaning behind his commitment that day. That temple was never the temple. Brothers and sisters, you are the temple. We are the temple. The temple of God is the church of God. The church of Jesus Christ on this earth is the temple where God has put himself in his name and his reputation. And of course, we say that about the universal church, but the universal church is made up of thousands and thousands and thousands of little local churches, big local churches, including this little church that we're all sitting in right now, that we're all sitting in because we're sitting not in a building with stone and rug, but we're sitting with each other. We're sitting with one another. Most of you who are committed to this local church in membership and upon this little community, small and harried as we may feel like we are, 
harried in the classical sense, not hairy in the, this sense. Upon this little community, the holy son of God, almighty king of the universe, has placed his name. Bound with this little community is God's name, the person and honor of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He lives here. It's mysterious. We don't understand it all. It is true. He is here right now in our midst. He made this church his dwelling place. And he lives here. His name is here. And his eyes and his heart are continually on us. And his reputation, his honor is linked with us. We represent him for better or for worse to one another and to the world. 1 Corinthians 3.16, I'm not making this up. Paul says to the church, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In the next letter, Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Bringing holiness to completion, fulfilling holiness. We are already holy. We are already holy in our position. That is totally okay, that happens. Don't worry about that. We are already holy. But Paul says, bring it to completion. Live who you already are. Walk in a manner worthy of what God has said about you, temple of Jesus Christ. We see this again in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is seeking to motivate holy living out of sexual immorality. And he, he makes this astounding assertion about this church struggling with sexual immorality. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What honor. It is unreal honor that God has bestowed on us. We are his temple. Who are we to get to have God say about us? You are my dwelling place. I have put my name in you. I have linked my honor with you. 
Who are we that God would do this? Who are we that, he, that we would be the very dwelling place of Yahweh? And that we would have the great call to honor him, represent him to one another and to the people around us who need him. There, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and that night when I heard that word in my spirit, I have set my name on this place. It did fill me with a great deal of encouragement and awe and, and a sense of strength, not in myself, but in being allowed to be associated and covered with that name and be part of something so great that nothing really can compare to that opportunity and that call to be called by Yahweh's name and to be called to represent him. There is no greater call. There's one more way I want to try to convey the dignity and honoring he's bestowed on us. Some time ago, I came upon old checks. In olden times, people used to write checks and then there'd be a little check receipt. You could save checks. Does anybody remember that time, the 1800s? So I came upon this bundle of old checks that my mom had written. And I looked at her signature. And you know what she wrote? She wrote, now her name was Mary Joan. Beautiful name. I love Mary. It's a beautiful name. I named my daughter Mary, Marie. My sister's name Mary. Jesus' mom's name is Mary. It's a great name. But that's not what she wrote on her checks. She would sign her checks, Mrs. Douglas Turner. Mrs. Douglas Turner. This was a traditional custom for some wives during this time. We can talk about there's some biblical background and why that happens. There's some cultural background. I'm not telling anybody to do that. I'm not telling anybody not to do it. But, but my point isn't to get into all that, but just to say that's what she did. Mrs. Douglas Turner. Now, my parents' marriage was not perfect in any means. But I like to believe, and I think I have some reason to believe, that my mom... She wasn't denying that she was a real person in some toxic way at all. She had a great personality, great flair, great gifts, talents, vocation. She loved life, did great stuff. My mom was, I, I like to believe that part of what was going on is my mom was just honored. She loved my dad. He wasn't perfect, but she loved him. And she knew what he was like in his heart. And she knew there was a real gravity of a real person. My dad had, I won't go into it, but you know, there were some bad things, but there were some wonderful things about my dad. And I think there were seasons where my mom was very proud of my dad, honored to be his wife. And I like to think that that was what was going on in her heart many times when she wrote, maybe I'm wrong, but I like to think that when she wrote Mrs. Douglas Turner, she was honored to be his wife and to be connected united to his name. But it also communicated something on that check that was important. It communicated that they were so inextricably bound to each other that all that my dad had was hers. They were one in marriage. Legally and relationally, they could not be closer without becoming the exact same person But in a sense, they already were one person. His treasure was her treasure. Whatever wealth he had in that bank was her wealth. And his honor was her honor. If his name was in good standing at the bank, her name 
was in good standing at the bank. His name was her name. And I think in seasons and times, she was proud and happy to be called by that name. And that's, and many times I'm sure she wasn't. But the point is there was no clearer or stronger way to communicate her union with my dad that though she was not him, she was one with him than to sign on that check, Mrs. Douglas Turner. His name belonged to her. It was her property. In Ephesians 5, Paul makes clear that temporary human marriage, like my mom's and dad's, is a reflection of an eternal marriage between Christ and his people. We are his bride. We are his spouse. We are one with him. 1 Corinthians 6 says, he who is united to the Lord is one spirit with him. You can't get closer in your identity without ceasing to be a person than to be called united with Jesus Christ and one with him. We are, in Ephesians 5 parlance, we are nourished and cherished by our husband and redeemer. In Revelation 21, the one who nourishes us and cherishes us gives us a final picture of our state with him. This is what the Apostle John saw. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. It's not, it doesn't have its own glory. It has, who would want its own glory if you could have the glory of God? Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Look at the church. Do you see the church? Do you see? Look around this room. Look at these people. She is the wife of Jesus Christ. She is one with him. All that he has belongs to her. All she has is his. He bought it when he poured out his blood for her. And now, as we see her in this last scene almost in Revelation, she is radiant, shining with his very glory. That's very bright radiance. And her name, her, on her forehead is his very name written. Do you know who you are? This is gonna sound a little weird, but I, I hope this encourages you. You are Mrs. Jesus Christ. Church, you're Mrs. Jesus Christ. That's how bound up he has united himself with you. I, I went to bed with that joy in my heart. I mean, gender stuff, it's important and crucial, but it's metaphor. It's telling us things. And I, I just thought, what an amazing thing to think that together with 
you guys, I am his spouse. We're all Mrs. Jesus Christ. He shared his name with us. He covers us with his glory and his honor. He, he's made himself one. He made himself one. He made himself one with your sin and your shame so that you could be one with his perfect righteousness and his beautiful glory. All that he has is yours. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your terrible stuff, of your struggles, of your sin. He knows it all. And he's, he's covered it all. He's paid for it all. And one day, he will remove it all. Because you're his spouse. You're his wife. He's not going to leave you. If you're his, he doesn't leave you. Now, it's 11.54. Please give me three more minutes. I just want to try to draw out a few application points. There's a lot we could draw, but, but there's one that's particularly on my heart today. The Lord's name is on this church. It's on Mountain View. His name is on Strong Tower. His name is on Frederick Church of the Brethren, New Life, New Hope. His name is on Monument. But his name is here, too. His name is here on Living Hope Community Church of Frederick. His very person dwells here in his people. His honor is bound up in your lives. So let's treat this church well. Let's treat this temple well. Let everything we be do be done for his honor inside this temple and, and to be seen outside this temple. Let's give ourselves to the work of making and maturing disciples here. At least here. Give yourself to one another. Give yourself to a DR, a community group, listening, sharing, praying, confessing, counseling one another. It's the work of the church for the sake of Jesus' name. If you can't do that because you're extremely busy, some of you guys are extremely busy, some of you tied out in many ministry commitments, please find some other means to really love people in this church faithfully and consistently because it's his place. It's his temple his, because his name is here. You know, sometimes I feel it's hard seeing how much some of you guys give and, and how small we are and, 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 and how personally I can get caught up in the wrong ways in, in our church. But when I hear this, you know, his name is here. He has put his name here. His spirit dwells here. I'm filled with a little bit of courage to ask you to care about this church. For his name's sake. Let's not let the work and the ministries of this church be ill-supplied or poorly poured into. Let's, let's supply a children's ministry with our best because Jesus' name is here. When you give your time to CM so that Sarah can worship. Where's Sarah? Is she here? So that Sarah can worship and her little kids can learn about God and just have fun 
and you have to wear yourself out with some of those little kids. I mean, particularly my kids, but Sarah's kids too will give you a workout. But you're doing it for Jesus. His name is here. When you serve on the worship team, it's Jesus who is affected most of all by your service. Jesus cares. He's ministered to. He has placed his very being at the center of, of our worship. Let's run soundboards for the name of Jesus Christ. I know Josh, it's a big hassle with that board. Josh puts in a lot of hours. He's done it for years. Isaac's starting to do it for years. It's hard work. A lot of problems every single Sunday. We're trying to figure it out. But Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He's here. He's affected. He cares. Let's run coffee ministry. Lori, it's such a blessing to have you filling cups of coffee. We love it. But most of all, his name is on the coffee ministry. It's a holy thing. You can do that ministry and say, I'm doing this for God's people, but they're God's people. So I'm doing it for him. Let's let Dorcas be well-staffed and supplied with vigor because Jesus is here. and He's honored when we give our all to these ministries for the sake of his name among the lost. He's bringing lost people every time we meet to meet him through us. Let's honor our church's financial needs as we can with our wealth out of faith that Jesus is honored in our generosity and that all he has is ours and he'll care for us. May praying for this church not be burdensome. May it not be a chore that you do every once in a while or just on Sundays when we meet. But may praying for this church be a burden on your heart of joy because Jesus' name is affected by your prayers because his own heart is caught up when you pray for this church. Make a commitment to come to Tuesdays every once in a while. I don't mean it like, come on once in a while. No, I just mean come. You can't come every Tuesday, I know that. But just say, I'm gonna come a few times a year and I'm gonna I'm going to lift up the log here. I'm going to carry this thing with these people. I'm going to throw coal into the fire. I, I could go on and on and on. There are, there are so many ways to serve one another in this little family. And some, many of you guys are, are, are doing much. And I just want to say it matters to Jesus that you are. It does because his name is here. He has pledged himself to this church. And what you do to this church to some real degree, you do for him. So if, if you need to know how, you can step into something, you can become part of a community group, or you can serve on a team. I have some ideas. Come and ask me. I won't be a, a, a jerk and force you into anything. God doesn't want a grumbling servant and forced into compulsive, compulsively forced. That's not what I'm talking about. I just want us to feel the joy of being called by his name. And, and because of that, say, oh, it, yes, this is an opportunity to touch his heart, to represent him inside and out. So, amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord God, I just pray for this beautiful bride. Thank you for pouring out your life and your blood to make us your wife. You couldn't say anything more loving, kind, glorious to us than to call us your bride and call us your very spouse than to say, you're one with me. You're one with me. Lord, cleanse this 
idea of, of anything that's not of you. But if this can be permitted, Lord, would you give us joy in being Mrs. Jesus Christ? What a privilege to be the bride of Jesus, the King, the name above all names, and to have your name united with us, to be called by your name, covered by your name. Holy is your name. You are beautiful. We are honored. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.